Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello. Hey. Hi, how are you? You're so fucking fancy. Well, I don't know. I don't know if I'm fancy, but video ready, I guess. Hold on, let me just change my shirt. I can't be talking to you while in a hoodie while you have that thing on. Hold on a sec. Is Wait. now still okay for no, you? No, this is fine. No, I, I have a slight headache, but I took a pill, and I just uploaded <laughs> a video about a creepy pedophile that's probably going to get banned, get me banned from the internet, but... It was an interview? No. No. Oh. I've been uh, reporting on this... Well, I've been reporting about this person that you're not supposed to talk about because he oh, will Oh, I know you who banned. you're talking about. I already know. Yeah. And he, they, she... Are now running for uh, Miss BC. No. Raising no. raising money for <laughs> Miss BC. No. So, See, so I... this kind of this kind of thing is going to delegitimize the idea of being trans for people who legitimately are just trying to have a normal life as a trans person, and that's really concerning. Like that's really troubling to me. That's one of the reasons why I started doing this series is because I saw a number of very bad representatives of this community. I have a good trans friend. Um, it's very private. Um, and I, I kept on getting contacted by trans people who were like, this is not, I just want to live my life. I don't, I don't yeah. want anything to do with this. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I can imagine. I've been really outspoken about certain things and I'm realizing at some level that doesn't accurately represent the work I do, right? Because what I say opinion wise is not a necessary reflection of how I work with a client, right? Like I have the opinion that um, we should help people align with their birth sex if possible, but I have lots of clients who are trans identified and I don't push them at all on that. Like we just help them bolster other important you know, aspects of the self, like how to be more confident, how to be more flexible. And like, so it's not necessarily true that the opinions I state online always reflect the work I do clinically. Hmm. And that's tricky because if a client finds my opinion piece, let's say that I've written on my blog or like a video that can certainly color their perspective of me. And that may not be accurate to the work I would do with them. Mm-hmm. So it's really tricky. So I'm trying to speak with different people and and get different perspectives on how to balance these things, if that's what I want to do, so that I can figure out, like, for me, based on what I want, based on, like, my character, my personality, how do I want my online presence to look? Yeah, yeah. Well, what do you think about resources online that do some work for you, do some pre-work for you, Like, like sorting media, media that provides a different set of opinions and views that 
then help somebody deal. Is that possible or does the therapeutic uh, kind of conversation have to be a conversation? Um, this, I think this is a new question. Like, I don't think we have a solid answer for that because the online media presence is a new thing for psychotherapists, you know? Um, if I think I understand your question, you know, like there are a lot of therapists who have a YouTube channel, right? And they talk to prospective patients or clients and they say, Hey, you know, if you're struggling with anxiety, here's like three things you can do. Mm. And those of course are not super controversial areas of um, inquiry, but for people who work around gender, there are some gender therapists who seem to have a prominent um, practice where they make videos about gender identity. They talk about their own personal gender identity. They're like top surgeries and things like that. So, I mean, there are clearly people who are creating um, an online persona that's quite intimate, actually, mm-hmm. and certainly goes beyond the realm of like therapeutic advice. So, I mean, I know that exists. I don't know if that's the direction I would necessarily want to go into. Is but it I always think in something... the affirmative? From what I've seen, yeah. And I yeah. that is what it seems to be. And what I'm doing, at least with like my videos for parents, because I don't have any videos right now that are geared towards teenagers. But in my videos for parents, I give alternative advice that is... Um, a way to help support your kid, listen empathetically, get a dialogue going that's not necessarily a direct challenge to their identity and it's not necessarily like a cheerleading affirmation like, yes, I believe you're literally a male. It's more just like, that's interesting. Tell me more about this identity. What does this mean to you? Um, Why do you feel like this is better for you than this? So the types of advice I give to parents is a good reflection of my perspective, but I'm starting to think it might be useful to create some sort of platform where I can talk to teens themselves so that if I do have, let's say, an opinion, you know, interview type thing like what we're doing, it's buffered within the context of a lot of very supportive videos that teens might see. Mm-hmm. So like if I do decide to go down the route of being visible more visible online, I would want to make sure that what I say is actually a representation of how I work one-on-one with patients and not so much just like me as an individual kind of sharing frustration about the field. Like, I don't want that to be the main thing that I'm seeing doing online. Yeah. That Uh, makes sense. Yeah. Maybe that would be something you can do when in a different period of your career than what you're doing now, than where you're at now. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure when I'm older, like many of the the clinicians who are really speaking out, they're either retired or they don't work in the field anymore, and they're able to be much more candid about their opinions. And I think, I mean, this is a trait that's gotten me in trouble for most of my life, but I'm pretty candid regardless, and I don't often think about like the optics of it. Mm-hmm. So I'm tailoring that, and I'm kind of trying to rein it in so that I'm representing myself accurately and not just like me ranting about stuff on the internet. Well, there's different layers to this because there's the parents who would find your videos, the teens that would find your videos, and then the ideological opponents who would find your videos and don't want you. I don't know what they're scared of or what they're mad about. I guess there's allegations that you could be uh, performing what's it called conversion therapy of Mm -hmm. some sort. Yeah. But if 
if somebody's calling everything that goes against them conversion therapy, that makes them come off as a kind of a cult thing that they don't want anybody's other kind of view. Yeah. I mean, the work I'm doing is actually, I mean, to borrow a term from like sexuality, it's very vanilla. Like the type of therapy I'm doing is very vanilla. It's like pretty standard. Like you're doing a thorough assessment of a client long term, you know, you're looking at their history back many years, you're thinking about comorbidities, other types of um, psychological or mental health issues that might be kind of contributing to their discomfort. And you're looking at the symptomology and trying to really thoroughly assess where this is coming from. You know, for example, people who have a body image disorder or an eating disorder, the symptomology is going to look very, very similar to what we describe as gender dysphoria. So the work I'm doing is really just a careful analysis of a person's kind of presenting concerns. And so to call what I'm doing conversion therapy, it kind of is an attack on therapy at its most basic kind of ethical standards of practice. That's the weird thing about it. <laughs> That's the weird thing about these accusations. That There's a parallel, and it might be a very loose parallel, but there's a parallel, it seems, between what you just described about uh, like a categorical analysis or a way of shuffling information into categories and then carefully going through these little distinct boxes. That sounds like a typology in a sense, which is what Ray Blanchard uh, developed and what Michael Bailey furthered and then got in a lot of trouble about because there's something within not necessarily transgender or the transsexual um, individual and the symptoms, but in that ideology that has embraced queer theory that is really rebellious against any form of structure, whether it's hierarchical or whether it's like, uh, you know, organized. Uh, yeah. What do you think about that? Um, well, before I answer, I just want to let you know your mic is rubbing up against your collar. And so oh, okay. when you go to edit the video, you might no, notice. I, I have another. I can't show you oh. right now. This oh, okay. That's... Thing, but I don't want to bother you. Um, well, I mean, I don't know. Like, I can't really speak to because I think often what you're doing is you're trying to connect the current state of you know, these controversial topics in psychology back to where they came from, maybe in academic circles, like you talk about queer theory. I can't really speak to that because A, I'm not an academic and B, I haven't studied like queer theory. I am aware that there's probably a link between these things. Okay. And I certainly know that some of the more radical kind of activists seem to be operating from a place, like you said, to make distinguishing between various Kind of segments of these populations impossible, right? By just saying like, no, you can't create distinctions or you can't study the different ways that these experiences manifest, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I mean, I guess that's why I think it's very dangerous for theory that's not based in clinical psychological experimentation to be dictating clinical psychological practice. Yeah. That's why people like Blanchard and Bailey, their work was really seminal because they actually tried to, you know, even though there are limitations in psychological study, they tried to study these populations in a systematic way that's not based purely on theory. What they did first is they took a population, they started to examine it, 
And then from that study, they were able to deduce certain kind of overlapping traits and create these typologies based on what they're seeing. Whereas I think what you're asking about is that these theorists have a, a kind of presupposition and then they try to apply that post hoc to a clinical population. That doesn't really work in psychology. You can't work backwards that way. Hmm. Well, not only can you not work backwards that way, but, but forming a cr critique based on that doesn't even make sense to psychology so that psychology, right. it's a threat to the way that psychology operates if it can't respond to that in a clinical manner, if it can't continue right. along the way that it's found is empirically valid through time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah correct. So can we, can we try to aim our gun at a barrel of fish that won't make so much of a splash and just talk about what let's say identity is and how do people go about forming an identity from, from sure. your point of view? Uh, and sure. We can try. I think that's a big question. I mean, I'm not a research psychologist, right? So I am not somebody who has been in a lab studying identity from that angle. But I can certainly share with you as a clinician, like, what my impression is about identity. Um, and can we take, like, a developmental lens through it, like how it forms? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, um, identity becomes... I mean, it's a salient aspect of life throughout existence, like from childhood on. But it becomes really, really important around adolescence. Because around that age, kids are uh, distinguishing themselves from the primary other, which is the parent and the mother usually. So as a small child, you know, the other person is your parent. And as you enter into peer relationships, there are many others in your life. And so as kids become, you know, around adolescence age, puberty age, those bonds that they have with uh, peer groups become really important because they're trying to distinguish themselves from their parental attachments. So, you know, that's why it's pretty common that teenagers um, take it really hard when they're rejected by peer groups, right? They also tend to latch on really quickly to peers who show them some acceptance. You know, you have, it's a very common experience that kids meet and within a day they're best friends with somebody, especially in girls. So these are really important times for a kid to um, find a peer group that they can attach to. And when a kid is challenged in that way, of course, it makes them vulnerable to attaching to kind of any peer group that comes along. And again, like to go back to the fact that my work is pretty vanilla, this shouldn't surprise anybody because this has always been an issue. You know, kids are vulnerable to, you know, getting mixed up what we'd say in the wrong crowd or like doing things that are very rebellious in order to feel like they fit in. So, um, identity at that age is kind of fickle in a way. And so um, it it's an interesting time today because kids are looking for identity outside of the kind of um, real life interactions that we've had as, as humans. Like 
this is the first time really in history where kids' identities are being developed largely online in a disembodied, screen-based kind of social network. Mm -hmm. And we don't have a lot of research about what that means and how that's different from being on a playground, you know, or being within a school, and that's the only kids you can interact with. When you have a, a whole world available to you online, and identity is also really being discussed very explicitly, whereas I don't think that's been the case in the past, you know, like, we've always had kids who identify with certain groups, but they're not using the word and they're not really focusing on it so explicitly. Yeah. You know, like, when I was a kid, some kids got really into like, grunge, and they would like dress like their favorite artists, or some kids wore like all black and but they weren't sitting there saying like, I identify as this or this or that. It was just kind of a natural, you know, outcropping of what it means to be a teenager and trying to find where you fit in. So when identity actually becomes a focus that we explicitly discuss, I'm guessing that that throws a wrench in the natural way that identities develop and change over time. So I, you know, often hear um, kids who are really trying to figure out very explicitly like who they are and like we talked about before going through lists of labels and trying to see which one matches with them um and that's different from just kind of naturally falling into a certain peer group and starting to um, attach to that peer group or dress like that peer group or identify with some of the behaviors of that peer group so i i don't really know I don't really know what the outcome of that is, but yeah. I imagine it's really throwing a wrench in how identity tends to develop. Well, they're thrust into a world that's one, like you said, abstract. Two, it's front loaded with all this terminology or this pseudo awareness that's more aware than the kids who are handling <laughs> yeah. that tool are. Like, like identity is like a really right. woke term and not woke in the progressive sense, but it's just a very aware yeah. metacognitive ability. But if you're not at that level of development to be able to handle that, it's just kind of bouncing a whole bunch of mirrors and and light off of what you're looking at. On top of that, there's a proliferation of information, stimulus. Uh, It's it's a mixture of information and stimulus. And I'm sure that the kid's not even developed enough mentally to distinguish between what's a stimulus and what's information or data. And they don't have the logical tools to sort things. So there's a natural sorting that happens that's probably emotional and I guess intuitive or sub subliminal. And then that sorting uh, takes on like this, uh, the, this really chunky cartoonish, uh, manifestation, like, like just back to basic tribal thinking, like there's the, the cool kids, the uncool kids, the queer kids, this kid, that kid. And it's like high school drama or like a high school drama movie where everybody's got like these kind of groups that, that from the outside, you can see what they are. And then there's that weird kind of that, that weird stuff drawer over here. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, too, they, kids, of course, lack the sophistication to understand things that are very, very complex. You know, I think um, it's absolutely true that the way people's identities will interplay with, like, their social networks and the way they kind of move through the world, like, those are valid uh, topics to think about. But when you take a 14-year-old who's just not going to be able to understand all of the complexity around that and you start attempting to teach them 
about identity at that age, of course, it's going to become something that's too simplistic. And like you said, kind of cartoony in a way. Like, for example, I, I was working with um, a client who is from kind of a middle middle class white family. Um, and in her school, she was learning about, you know, racial identity. And she also mm -hmm. had a part time job. And one of her coworkers was, I think, Southeast Asian or something. And my client, you know, somebody mispronounced the coworker's name. She had a name from Southeast Asia. It was maybe not a common American name. And my client said something like, oh, I just felt so bad for her because people from that culture are so oppressed. And like, I just felt so bad for my coworker. And, you know, I thought it was hmm. interesting that there's obviously a, a grain of compassion there that I think is coming from a good place. But obviously, it's not that simple that just because somebody yeah. exists in a specific identity category, that their entire existence can be boiled down to like, either they're on top or they're on bottom, yeah. you know, and as a person who myself probably falls into some identity categories that are maybe underneath some others, if you're going to buy into that hierarchy, yeah. it's not that simple, you know, you can't just like measure people up against one another and then determine who you feel bad for and who you don't. It seems like they're handed through, I don't want to get too political, sorry, but through the social <laughs> justice uh, doctrinaire handbook that they're handed at school, they're given all these kind of emotional responses to real world events. And they're taught to express uh, pantomimes of actual compassion like like pity it's just it's a pantomime of empathy yeah. you don't really know what that other person's going through so you kind of categorize them and then you make this show and so and at that age i don't know if you can do anything other than signal virtue when when you are signaling it's there's more signal than than information in what you're doing because you're playing you're trying things out you're fitting things on not to say that you can't be authentic when you're that age but like a deep, rich emotion is going to be very rare, yeah. especially if it's already front loaded. And, you know, when they're, they're given all these tools in, in school to, to act and behave this proper, proper way. That's yeah. kind of... And they're not given tools to to really think about these issues in all of their complexity and multidimensionality. They're really only taught to look at it from this very hmm. like. Like, again, hierarchical positional based uh, structure. Whereas really, I mean, anyone who studies multiculturalism knows it's much more complicated than that. And it's not just a simple like oppression and oppressor narrative. It's just, it's, it's not complex enough. It's well, so what's the outcome when one internalizes this oppress, oppressor uh, oppressed narrative? And have you worked with people like that? Or have you done work like trying to like ease the, that fixation on that kind of framework? Um, you know, what what can be useful in this work like of course that that conversation was quite peripheral to the real conversation that i was having with that client right that wasn't the crux yeah. of our conversation was how she felt about her coworker but in times when this does become salient is um clients who have come to believe that there's only one way to be addressed in order for your humanity and your dignity to be upheld and that's of course really troubling because we that locus of control question, right? We can't control necessarily how others view us. And if our sense of dignity or humanness or worth is tied up into that, it's very disempowering. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I work with clients on 
um, you know, how can you as a person develop the strength and flexibility to actually feel okay in multiple environments? That will benefit the client. So that might be a, a way that we'd work on that, though it's not so much um, like an ideological debate about the idea of yeah. oppressor and oppression. Huh. It's more like what psychological tools would help you as a person to expand your world and have a greater um, set of options of like where you can go and be comfortable, who you can talk to and feel okay. Where is your um, sense of worth coming from? Is it something that resides within you or is it something that's dependent on others? And that can be very useful to work with people who do feel, let's say, like they're being misgendered or they're being marginalized. It can actually be very powerful to say, well, wait a minute, let's let's not get stuck on this idea. It's not necessarily true that you have to feel a certain way when a person speaks to you in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And I think I've heard um, you talking with... Um, who was it? There's um, a trans person that you interviewed that talked a little bit about this, how in different environments she knows that people may view her one way or another, but that that's not going to be mm -hmm. um, a reason to feel terrible about herself. Yeah, or an excuse to lash out. Right, right. Which is, which is the funny thing. Uh, it's like I can read into certain sorts of ideological leanings or filters on the world and see that somebody's being a bad actor in the way that they're always okay for example a article was published a couple weeks ago or maybe last week uh, by a local station here a local npr station or public radio station uh, or something like that that had to do with an argument that people mispronouncing other people's names is an instance uh, of racism. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so that locus of control thing, the first thing that I feel is that, no, you're just manipulating me. You just mm. want to have power and attention, right? And that, so I don't, I, I distrust you. I mean, because already, like, like saying that something's racist is already a bid for a moralistic, it's already entering into a moralistic yeah. Um, yeah. kind of framework uh, where that puts me on the downside of obeying you and I can't disagree. I just have to obey. Um, but that's the first order. That's the first order problem I have with it. But the second order is that when somebody who's not a bad actor starts to think in those terms and yeah. behave in that way, then they, they have a lot of like problems just start cropping up in their behavior because then they they're not seeing that that yeah this is a tool for manipulation they're just being manipulated by the tool because it's a bad tool yeah in and of itself i mean maybe there's something to say with uh paths towards sympathy like the whole the, the with the whole concept of privilege when i first encountered it i'm on the fir the first encounter that i had with it i'm like okay this is you trying to teach me how to be more sympathetic for other people and be more aware and sensitive for other people. But you're going about it completely the wrong way. Instead of like teaching me humility, you have like this whole weird set of, of thoughts. And, and I wonder if you, if you even think in the terms of like first principles or, or, or values and virtues as opposed to, and using uh, stronger concepts to guide one through life as a good person and, and something that makes that social justice lingo kind of fishy because it's one step removed from that. Yeah. 
I mean, if I were to encounter something like that in my clinical work, I might I might be inclined to do like a thought experiment where we might look at a totally different situation. So, for example, if you um, are traveling to another country and people mispronounce your name, would you interpret that as a sign of racism or how else would you explain that? Right. Like if I'm talking to a teenager, that might be a, a kind of thought experiment we do together. And I think rather than it necessarily being a values issue or a principles issue, it's more, I always see everything as just like, we're really lacking the complexity around this topic. You know, mispronouncing a name can be for many, many, many reasons, you know, one of which maybe could be racism. I'm not like throwing that off the table as a possibility, but more likely than not, it can be other complicated factors. And I say this as a person who, you know, my parents mispronounced some words sometimes when I was a kid, like my dad more so than my mom, but, and I of course have mispronounced words like we all have. But when we look at something and immediately ascribe this behavior to a racism or to a sexism, it just removes all the complexity from hmm. that, that issue. Mm-hmm. So for me, I'm always thinking about it and, and, you know, how much complexity are we taking into account? And if we've stripped something of its okay. complexity or its nuance, then we're probably missing some important things. That's how I approach my clinical work, too. Like, if you are missing some complexity around the feelings you're having towards gender, let's say, then we're also missing some important work that needs hmm. to be done. Hmm. And how does one manage complexity? Or is there, like, we, we started talking about identity. And in a sense, you said that identity is found in distinguishing someone against another or with another like it's always like a kind of like i i am and i am not i am and i am not and and as one grows older maybe for me it just feels like eventually you kind of let go of the scaffold of identity and you're just yourself and that's one one argument i have not had about gender let's say it's like we put so much weight in this gender concept Um, that it starts to ruin everything else. It starts to seep into everything else. And you start to see, let's say, sexism everywhere when, yeah, we need to reduce sexism, but sometimes you make the monster bigger by focusing on it in a way. But Yeah. Well, I mean, I think this question reminds me a bit of something that they talk about in the coddling, which is, you know, they refer to something called problems of progress. (laughs) And they say, you know, when we look at... Um, uh, let's say you take a a country or a culture that's in the middle of a war time, for example, what they consider violence, if they're seeing like, you know, egregious violence around them all the time, the threshold is very high. But then if that culture kind of trans um, transfers into a, a more peaceful time, the tolerance for what they consider violent behavior gets lowered a little bit. Mm -hmm. And that's a good thing, of course, because we want to be moving towards a society and a culture that's less violent and less sexist and less homophobic and all this stuff. But that also means our bar for what we consider, you know, sexist language or sexist behavior has Mm. gotten lowered by a lot. Mm -hmm. And that's why you see, um, I would say some feminists like uh, Christina Hoff Summers and some of these other feminists who are constantly trying to, I think, keep things in perspective globally, like what we are considering sexist behavior here, like let's say a, a man flirting with a woman at work, which... I mean, we can discuss whether that's appropriate or not, but to say that that 
is sexist on the same level as, you know, preventing women from having a driver's license. You know, let's keep it in perspective. Mm -hmm. And I think that that talking about that in the coddling makes a lot of sense to me. Like this problem's a progress issue. Yeah. So, um, it, it's a conceptual issue in a way. It reminds me of one of Zeno's paradoxes. Uh, the one with Achilles, I think it's Achilles where in order to get from point A to point B, he has to go halfway and then halfway to there and then halfway to there, halfway there, halfway there, but he's always halfway there. Yeah. And it seems like the problem, the problem is always the same size. If you look at it in, in the same way, we're only halfway there, but yeah. that, that you, by forgetting or, or, it's a weird perspective issue. Well, it's like there's no end point yeah. when you look at it that way. I mean, we yeah. could go on in for an infinite number of years constantly targeting yeah. the next less egregious behavior as being a sexist behavior or a racist behavior or whatever the case may be. And, you know, I would say we probably need both sides of this debate because I think... Yeah. To some degree, we can't abandon the striving for a more egalitarian society. We should always continue being conscientious about that. Yeah. But we also need people who are standing on the, the kind of other side of that debate saying, you know, let's keep it in perspective. Maybe this is not really as terrible as we're making it out to be. But I think we need both of these sides so that we don't end up um, going too far in either direction. I've mm. heard Jordan Peterson kind of talking about this, that we actually need both sides of the political spectrum, let's say, so that it doesn't, you know, devolve into some kind of like extremist version of either party. Yeah, it seems it, it like back to what we were saying with identity um, or or some sort of political action like a, a progress or the the dismantling of systems of oppression, let's say like that. Um, it just seems like there's a way to do it that's artful and that keeps in mind that balance. And so the balance itself has to reside outside of the problem, outside of the debate even between what's good enough and what's not yeah, good enough. Yeah. And, and so I take kind of, I guess it would be a psychological or even perhaps spiritual uh, way of thinking about it where I have to go and see, am I living my life good? Yeah. Do I have a good relationship to, to my, uh, what's outside of the world, whatever you want to call that, you know, but yeah. do I have a good relationship between me and myself, me and, and that which is above the world. And then me and the world can start to come into alignment yeah. after I get those other two things figured out. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the question of where are we personally responsible? And I think that can get very tricky with hmm. this identity politics issue because there's kind of this thread running through that um, removes responsibility from one party depending on where they are positionally speaking. Hmm. And, you know, oh, yeah. that can be true, I think, in certain clear cases. But the idea that everything kind of works together means that everyone has to be conscientious of their own attitudes, their own behaviors, the the way they may or may not be contributing to a specific dynamic between people. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that's what I'm seeing a little bit with, I watched a, a comedy special um, recently of Amy Schumer and she okay. was very, like there were parts that I found very funny, but then there were parts where she was really being quite mocking towards 
some of the arguments that people have been making about men's position and culture right now. Mm-hmm. And she was being um, very kind of infantilizing and really making fun of any complaints that men might make. And I can understand why, you know, there might be like this kind of backlash happening, but that makes me wonder, like, are we really conscientious about how that attitude is going to impact other people? Like we, we can't just Hmm. say, well, because this has been done for X amount of time, we now get licensed to be really ugly and alienate like whole groups of people because that's how we got here in the first place. So, um, I, I think your your comment about making sure you're right with like whatever's above and like with the world around you, that speaks to the responsibility we each kind of have yeah. to make sure we're just being conscientious about what we're putting out into our culture and our society. Yeah, I, I, it kind of goes back to a, a Buddhist concept. Uh, I'm probably mangling it, but about samsara and about like just engaging with the back and forth and kind of losing yourself in the correction let's say yeah. let's say if yeah, yeah. It, it's a it's an adolescent or it's an immature way of viewing a problem to say well i will just reverse the problem and that will fix it and we'll even things out yeah. equality is a very yeah. crude form of morality um and i mean equality taken to the to the sense like because men have statistically been in power statistically are abusive and this and that way and much more easier to measure how they're abusive and uh, how they've screwed up the world. Um, we should they should be fine with the opposite happening to them. It's kind of very eye for an eye in a way. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's it's like a tit for tat kind of thing. Well, yeah, the thing is the tits and the tats are just going <laughs> to keep on getting stronger and stronger in their tatness, you know, yeah. it just, it never really ends. I, I have another question. This is probably might be controversial too, but um, I'm reading uh, a book that's heavily referenced in the coddling of the American mind um, called iGen by yeah, Jane Twangy. Uh, yeah. And she, I'm in the chapter where she's talking about godlessness in America or like just the, this, generation that she calls iGen, she's kind of just losing their religion or not really needing it anymore. And the people who are in the religion are wanting, specifically Christianity, wanting Christianity to kind of speed up with the times with regards to certain moral moral questions and then certain ways of communication. What what do you think is the, the use in, I guess, in a psychological aspect, not necessarily clinical, but psychological for a religion or some sort of discipline or spiritual or religious kind of discipline. Uh, And do you see that that if a young person doesn't have that, they'll find it in a way, they'll find some sort of uh, structure, ideological structure, if they're not given it? Mm. Um, That's tough. I think I think we're all we're all naturally kind of disposed to adhering to some sort of a belief system even if that belief system is railing against belief systems right like you meet atheists who are so dogmatic that it seems like a religion you know yeah so I think we all do that and we all gravitate towards some sort of kind of guiding principles in our lives um And I don't know if religion, if it's kind of um, mandated onto kids 
is necessarily a protective factor from falling into, you know, maybe let's say some kind of harmful group that you interact with in a way that's psychologically unhealthy. I don't know. Hmm. Um, I think it depends very much how a belief system is kind of encouraged in a kid. Like, shoving a religion down a kid's throat often has quite the opposite effect. You know, like you, you meet people who grew up in um, very fundamentalist homes where the religion was very aggressively kind of mandated onto the kids. And then they often kind of say, well, you know, I'm questioning literally everything I believe about myself in the world. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, if a spiritual practice is something that a, a kid finds very meaningful and that they kind of can pursue, which brings out the best parts of themselves, mm -hmm. that probably is a protective factor. You know, if a religion or a, you know, spiritual belief is punitive or kind of makes a person feel like a horrible guilt or shame, it's probably not going to be something that they adhere to for long unless it's like from a place of guilt. But if a spiritual practice can make a kid feel, um, very hopeful about their potential or like what they want to do with their time in their life. I imagine that that is um, something that might kind of protect them from joining an, an extreme kind of group that doesn't serve them well mm -hmm. or doesn't bring out the best in their character. On a Jungian level, uh, I guess Peterson's like the, the gateway to Jung more than <laughs> Christianity. But like I think of Jung, but Peterson's the, the guy who's been uh, spouting these ideas or yeah. sharing these ideas, bringing him back. Um, this narrative framework in which the individual is situated is another way of identity being formed. So identity is formed uh, by who I identify with and against and then the negotiations that I do and then my conception of who I am in the world and, and what my life is and like like pursuing a meaningful life. Yeah. Is that is that something useful when is that one of the tools that you try to develop or do you see that being useful in conceptualizing one's future and one's past having to erect a, a, a story and then having that story situated in a larger story? Yeah, I think it depends on the age of the client, okay. right? You talked about the developmental kind of aspect of this. Adolescence is very much about rebellion, you know, and it's hmm. very much about kind of differentiating from the authority figures in your life and, and trying to mitigate um, rule following versus like being independent versus following social rules of your peer group. So at that age, you know, I certainly think there's a place to talk about things that are meaningful, especially for some of the kids I work with who are kind of socially justice minded. I think for them, um, hmm. like some of the peak resilience girls talk about this interesting link between being a cis ally and then later yourself identifying as trans, you know? So for a lot of the kids who I work with who are very compassionate and are trying to, hmm. um, kind of tap into their ability to do something good for the world. I think that for this population, it usually starts there with some kind of like a social justice uh, activism. Um, so for them, that can seem like something meaningful, that that's a kind of an aspirational uh, kind of morality. Um, but for other kids, you know, who maybe feel like they come from very enmeshed families, let's say, where their parents have had a lot of control over them and that sort of thing, um, the focus for their 
kind of developmental stage might be more of one of like rebellion but like how can you rebel in a way that really is a true individuation and not just like following along with this herd mm -hmm. hmm. i don't know if that answers your question but. rebellion i mean there's a story about that somewhere in the bible but um actually probably <laughs> half the bible's about that yeah <laughs> i I remember I, I grew up in a, a in a religious home. My father's a pastor, and um, and at, at some point, like yeah, I rebelled or whatever. But whenever I go back to the Bible, I still hear his voice in it, and it's still like hard because that his voice is so filled with conviction that it's hard for me to to see around his conviction to see the actual text anymore. So like yeah. it, it it for it still forms a block, and I, I really need to do a lot more growing up in my life. And, um, <laughs> But at the same time, I just wonder, well, okay, sorry, I'm just going to switch uh, gears here because we were talking about identity and development. And I guess what's the end goal of, of therapy for you or what's your, wh what are you trying to, I guess with every kid, it's different or every parent's different, but like, what do you see the end or the talos of therapy to be? Okay. So I think I'll rephrase your question yeah, for you. Please. Thank you. <laughs> and I'll say... What is the direction that you want the child to move in? And then what direction do you want the child to continue moving in after therapy? So that's a better question. Okay. For me, it is, can the person see themselves with greater capacity? So can I see myself as a person who has a lot of flexibility in terms of what's possible for my life, how I might identify? how I move through the world in terms of like my social network and my job and my academics and my family. Can I see myself as bigger? If that means within the framework of some kind of trans identity, that mm. might be what real individuation means for that person. But if the identity is making your world really small, then that doesn't seem to be like a true individuation for this person. Mm. So I guess it's like seeing yourself as, a person with a lot of options who can be confident and successful in many, many realms of life. That way you have all your options open to you. And when therapy is over, then you have what you need to like really go out there in the world and figure out who you are. Mm -hmm. Figuring out who you are doesn't stop at 19. You know, if I have a client for a couple of years and they terminate at 19, it doesn't mean they're at some sort of a finite place. Hmm. So to me, therapy should always be about expanding a person's self-concept so that they have all these options for how to be in the world, you know? And if somebody is like highly anxious, for example, and they have become relegated to like the only places I can go and feel comfortable are home, you know, school, and this one particular place, their life is closed off. So if I can help that person recognize that like they actually have the capacity to experience all of these other places or all of these other situations that seems to be a goal of therapy that i think is ethical because then the person can decide for themselves like what they want mm -hmm. and identity seems like there, there's this trick between identity being something that is and something that it, it's not so it's it's a rung of your identity with regards to we can replace trans with anything else, like any sort of identity. Um, trans just stands out because it it's 
it's in it's pitted against like a lot of biological information so it really yeah. stands out and so if if one does indeed engage with that as a part of their identity they're setting themselves up for a lot of of work that they're going to have to continually do on a physical level but any sort of identity whether it's a physical identity as a white person a black person a cultural identity as you know a grunge person or a punk person those that's just one rung in which the individual negotiates or strikes up a negotiation between themselves and their environment right yeah yeah. And yeah. so the, the the trick is in giving it its due, but not giving it too much power, I guess. I mean, focusing exclusively on your identity labels, I think inevitably is going to close up your world mm-hmm. because it's going to heighten your otherness compared with people around you. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's necessarily useful, you know, like if if I became really obsessive over my cultural identity and I framed all of my daily interactions from a question of like, how does my ethnicity impact this or that situation? Yeah. It's going to suck up so much of my psychological energy that inevitably I'm like closing off doors to other interesting like avenues of thought that I might have or like interesting spiritual questions I might have or whatever the case may be. Or even what you give to your environment, what you give to other people is always going to be hampered by that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Absolutely. If you are anticipating hostility, let's say you're going to be, you know, jammed up and you might respond in a certain way. So these things have so many ways that they can negatively impact our life. And then there are, of course, sometimes when it's important to be conscientious of like how your identity might have played a role in this or that situation, but to become obsessed over it doesn't seem useful. And I think like identity, it's not a new thing in terms of it being real, like hmm. people's identities have always played a part in their lives. But I think the way we focus on it, it's like a meta focus of identity that doesn't need to be so front hmm. and center. Yeah. Um, well, I don't I think, know. I think weird. it's stri- I think it might be related to what we were talking about with regards to Internet culture. And it just made me think about having a Twitter account. I, I have a Twitter account with my name on it. So I'm yeah, not. Yeah. Some people have a Twitter account that's like their identity or like the way that they interact with the world, the way they interact with Twitter. They're, uh, you know, a gamer or they're feminist or they're this or that thing. And so what they do is they produce kind of the same content over and over and over again. Now, somebody like me, I can easily fall into the trap of being constantly the, you know, critic of postmodernism, critic of colleges, critic of this, or or I'm going to talk about this thing. And I... I get reinforced in being that because I gain people who see me talking about that, like what I'm saying, like how I'm saying it. But then did I just turn into a ghost? I don't know. I, I saw that. Sorry. I, okay. How long ago was that? No, it was one second. Okay. <laughs> no, it was just like a quick, quick thing. My point is, is that <laughs> I can be reliably one thing and, somebody who talks about one thing and has a certain position and I can gain entry into people who think and talk that way, or I can enter into a very much more risky way of engagement of instead of being reliable, I become variable and I have to be very careful when I'm variable because I'm invariably going to be pissing off people 
who are following because me because I'm talking about one thing or I'm I'm in one position I'm in another position I for whatever reason I'm trying to do this thing where I can be critical of feminism get a lot of internet points and then I can be a ally of feminism and get a lot of points and I can be a critic and an ally and I can go from one topic to another I can be critical of a trans person and I can be completely accepting of a trans person. And because I'm not critiquing their transness, I'm not critiquing fem feminism, I'm critiquing behavior. I'm critiquing ways in which human beings yeah. are being good or bad actors. And yeah. it, it's a tricky thing to do. It's so funny because what you're saying, I think is probably a very ancient way of evaluating people and judging people because, you know, before we had I mean, this is going to be a little, this is like not my realm, but I'm just going to throw it out there. Before we had written language and people had to like, you know, write down, I am so-and-so, I represent this institution, I come from this church or whatever, we had to evaluate one another. I mean, A, based on tribes, but also based on interactions and behaviors, right? And we are now in in a place where like, our identity markers are constantly like the thing we have to put down on a piece of paper to help our viewers, or our readers figure out who we are and where we stand. And so I think that's very different from like pre-internet interacting with people in three dimension in real time. You know, it's not just about what they wrote down on a paper about who their identity is. You know, you're able to make a judgment about that person based on your actual experience of that person. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know, like, I feel like that's an interesting thing to think about because yeah. we we can easily forget that there are other ways that humans maybe should be evaluating one another beyond just what's today's trend of like look at everyone's identity categories and figure out what side of the political aisle they're on or like whether they go to church or not and then decide if they're a nazi like yeah, there yeah. may be other ways that we should be figuring out how to interact with other people i was a long time ago i was uh i was on the edge of my life uh i was like i guess this is back when i was 22 so like 20 years ago um, but I was really pushing myself to the limit in a lot of different ways. And I was working in a cafe and it was really busy. It was around Christmas time. And, and I was just, I, I was really exhausted and really just like, just going for it. And all of a sudden, like I looked around and I'm like, I'm a thought came into my head, just see noses. And <laughs> I was just surrounded by hundreds of people and all I saw were their noses and there were all these <laughs> noses walking around. It was really trippy. But at the same time, I realized just how freaking weird a nose is and how different one nose is to another. Like I, that's all I saw of everybody around me. You can start me. a church, Benjamin. The church of the nasal passageway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's a great way to evaluate people. You can... But Okay, so what was your kind of takeaway from that day of observing noses? Oh, I was just I was just thinking about like when when you said like we're reducing everybody and I just had an interview with somebody yesterday who's an art critic, um Alexander Alexander Adams, and he said that he's getting he receives all these um uh, I guess write-ups from other artists that want him to 
view their art and critique mm -hmm. their art. And he says every single opening paragraph has their identity in it. Every oh. single one. I'm yeah. a white, I'm this, I'm that, I'm this and that and this and that. He's like, I don't care about that. Yeah. Um, and and our, in our conversation, we, we talk about the problem with the art world right now is that it's it it subtracted that aesthetic level of evaluation of art. And without that aesthetic level of, of art, what do we have left without that ethical level of viewing another person? What is left other than historical forces and the shopping bag of our DNA? There's mm -hmm. nothing left. It's utterly in the end. It's nihilistic. Yeah. It just be everything becomes political commentary. Yeah. In a way. It's not really about the aesthetic of the art. Yeah, there's the aesthetic of the art or or you in a sense in the political sense you never get to be intimate with another person. And and yeah. intimacy gets evaporated when we are all just intersectionaled into, yeah. you know, like the and it doesn't help that we're also on these disembodied pieces of technology. Well, I, I think mean, we're having we're we're gonna upload ourselves into the radiant other. It's not yeah. gonna it's not gonna not be an option. How are we gonna do that? I think that's the growing pains. How how are kids going to find out about being a a fully realized human being through the interface of these screens? I don't know. Maybe don't we'll know. have like some sort of solar flare and I'll go away, but I don't know. I, that's a really hard question because, I mean, obviously we can't go backwards in time in terms of our technological development, but I do feel like there's something inherently kind of anti-human about technology that mm -hmm. can completely remove us from the material reality of the body mm -hmm. and some of the important kind of biochemical interactions that happen when you're in person with a real live human hmm. and you know when we think about like teenage identity development for example to kind of loop back there if that's happening all on screens and you know in in tumblr pages or i don't even know what you call those things are they pages i don't know what tumblr is yeah. but when everything is happening that way there's something important that is lost mm -hmm. you know and yeah. I know every generation says that, like, oh, when, you know, back yeah. in the day, things were better. But we don't know evolutionarily what happens to humans when all of our interactions are like this. Yeah. We just or, yeah. It's weird because we didn't have language at one point. Right. We probably had dreams before then, but we, we had language. And then we started interacting on this memospheric cultural level. And we've uploaded a lot and found a lot and founded a lot of ourselves mm -hmm. in this sphere. And now it's one step even more removed. And yep. it does make me not surprised at all that when a kid who is in that world so much gets back into their body, doesn't feel like their body belongs to them anymore, and then starts yeah. to want to take steps to conform their body just like they can conform their web presence to that idea that they have. And there's no real grounding in day after day after you know, these cycles, these natural cycles, this, you know, the, the patience of bone. It's yeah. all just like the flutterings of neurons. Yeah, totally. It's very much. And what's interesting too, this population, at least on my caseload and the parents I've talked to, they tend to be very, very gifted, you know, highly gifted kids. Yeah. So hmm. they're, they're already um, inclined to kind of intellectual curiosity and they like to play with abstract concepts and they're prone to getting very cerebral. You know, they can get stuck in their minds very easily. Mm -hmm. And so 
it's not like a giant leap if that's your tendency to feel very disconnected from the viscera, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's very interesting to think about all of these factors that come into play. And that's why I say the type of work I do, it's pretty vanilla because these are <laughs> questions that a therapist should be thinking about, you know, what are the yeah. predispositions of this patient and how is their, um, kind of natural personality interacting with their cultural and social environment. So, yeah. Not controversial at all. <sighs> no, not at all. It shouldn't <laughs> be. I don't think it should be. Hmm. I mean, they're human beings like any other kid. So we should be thinking about these things. I think the field of psychology in general has lost a lot of its nuance, you know? Hmm. Um, People treat anxiety like it's just one thing. And, you know, you have an anxiety disorder, you just take this medication. But, of course, in reality, anxiety is not just one thing. Any Hmm. 10 people that feel anxious could have a very different experience of what that means and why they're feeling that way. Not to say that there aren't um, kind of common denominators that we can derive, like, let's say, the best types of treatments. But we cannot simplify things to such a degree that we lump everybody into one category. Yeah, it's very, very difficult to conceptualize a three-dimensional world. Yeah. I mean, we live in it, but it, when we start to conceptualize things, we flatten them down. And, and like you say, we, I guess we have to resist or be humble enough to realize that there's always more depth than we can see at first glance or even at several glances in. Yeah. And also, I mean, I frame things from curiosity a lot with my kids that I work with. Like if we were really curious about this, what else is going on? Let's be curious about this angle of it, or this angle of it. So rather than beating people down and saying, become more humble, I might say, let's actually be really okay. curious about how interesting this might be if we look at it from this or that perspective. Oh, you're clever. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you work with teens, so you have to make sure to kind of draw on the best versions of themselves, and they can certainly be moody and grumpy, and you don't want to be like a reprimanding figure or condescending, because teens are often, they feel condescended too. So I always try to kind of bring them along to like this exciting, interested place. Yeah, where they have the power, ultimately. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. 